And behold, a lawyer stood up to, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm pastor here at Soma. And I'd love to pray with you and then dive into this text. Father God, Lord, I ask you to be present here in this moment and for us to be able to hear a fresh word from you from a familiar text. And Lord, one that has been working in my heart and in my life all week and has been in many ways, cutting me to a place where I just want to come close to you and be near to you and allow you to continue to refine and work and shape my soul. As you've already shown me this week, it has so many places to continue to be refined and worked and shaped, and I'm guessing I'm not alone here. Lord, there's, there's a lot of things we can get busy doing when we talk about our series of practicing the way of Jesus. And there's a lot of things that we want to put ourselves to to shape ourselves in your image. But Lord, we, we don't want to start out an activity and lose your heart for this world and for our place and in our time. Or something that I can so commonly do. And again, guessing I'm not alone, that we can so commonly do. And so Lord, let us, if in just this moment, be reminded through your text, through your scriptures, of your heart for people, your heart for the world around us, and when we say world, to put flesh and bone and faces and names in that world, in that picture. 
And so remind us of that, Lord, in a way that invites us to participate in your grand story because of the life of which you have given us that overflows into life for others. Lord, I want that for me. I want that for us here as a church. I want that for our city. I want that for our neighbors. Um, Lord, I confess that sometimes my heart is cold to want it as, uh, as much as I desire to want it. Sometimes the want to want to is more than the want to. And so, Lord, move us in this moment now towards not just wanting it or wanting to want it, but actually living into a love for you that moves out to a love for others. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in this series of practicing the way of Jesus. We've been setting up this idea for our church that we want to be a people that are not just coming in and holding on to these things that we believe that don't shape us, don't move us, don't cause us to change. That when Jesus walks in preaching the kingdom of God is near, he doesn't say, okay, now just like pray this prayer or just like hold on this. Rather, he says, Hey, no, repent, which means turn from what you're doing. Turn from how you're living. Change and rethink everything about what you know to be true and step into my kingdom. Adopt my ways because I come bearing life to the full. And we've been talking about just each week how we can get into this point of my Christianity, my faith, doesn't actually work itself out into my life. And, and again, there's all sorts of reasons why we even say like, well, you know, the gospel saves us and it, and it saves us from the need to prove ourselves. And that's absolutely true. But as we've said two weeks ago, as we said last week, that the gospel frees us from the guilt of sin and also frees us from the power of sin so that we become progressively like our Savior, like Jesus. And we have these three goals that we've been putting before you that we desire to be as a people disciples of Jesus, and that means that we will abide with Jesus. We will be near to him, and that abiding, as John 15 says, will produce fruit, and that fruit is a transformed heart and soul in our lives, and then transformed activity in our lives, and so that we will those who are progressively becoming and looking more like Jesus, not to earn our salvation, but because we have it, because we have been changed. And as we step into these goals, as we step into these things, we just realize as, as pastors in this church that we have a concern for us, that we can step into even these good things like practicing the way of Jesus, and we can disconnect it from the reason that we become shaped in the image of Jesus is because we want to bring life to the world around us. That practicing the way of Jesus sometimes can become this really individualistic thing. Like, I come, I practice these things, I, I learn to pray, I learn to transform my mind through scripture, I learn to become a transformed person, and then out of that, um, it, it never explodes out into the world around us. And so that's our concern for us. Um, and honestly, I think that's a legitimate concern and it's based out of Jesus' concern for people that he sees in his life and his time. Um, and that, I think, comes straight out of the text. And so let me open up this text for you. Uh, if you still have your Bibles open to 869, read along with me in chapter 10, verse 25. And then I want to take some time to apply this text to our church. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now, that lawyer, I think, is better, maybe a, a more translation that would bring out uh, more of what's going on, is a expert of the Jewish law. That this was one who, somebody who spent his time looking into the law that God had given the Jews and had sought to seek and understand it so that it might be applied to the Jewish people so that they might be an obedient people. And so he says that he stands up and notice that he's putting Jesus to the test. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, he's a scholar of the law. He's an expert of the law. It makes sense. Turn the question back on him. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That is Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And the Shema was something that the Jewish people would have prayed every morning and every night. It was something that they drilled into themselves to say, hey, what is the call on our lives? It's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might, which is a way of saying with every part and every capacity of ourselves, we are pressing into loving God. And then, interestingly enough, this religious scholar then adds to it Leviticus 19, where he says, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, hey, this is exactly it. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the religious scholar, desiring to justify himself. I mean, immediately he wants to put a limit on this. There's a sense of like, okay, uh, this is a really big do. I mean, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might, with everything in you, and then loving your neighbor as yourself, everything that you see for those around you that you wish and desire to be done for you, you do for them. And so he's feeling the squeeze of this. I mean, this is a really big do. And so as he feels this, he looks to limit it. He looks to justify it, and he's looking for a loophole in in a way, and he says, hey, so who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, and it goes with this story. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Oh, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers uh, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this um, idea of hi- this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is actually quite a literal idea. Uh, this was a 17-mile stre- uh, stretch that would drop 3,000 feet in elevation. And it had all these rocky outcroppings, so it was a very ideal place for bands of robbers basically to set up shop and just wait for people because you could see people coming from a long ways as they were coming down the hill, and you could ambush them because it was somewhat remote. And so this man is going down on this road. He falls across mo- uh, uh, robbers, are, and they beat him, and they leave him half dead. Or you could read that, uh, leave him four dead. They thought they'd kill him. And now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so we like to, um, I, I think a lot of times we put an unfair light on this priest who, yes, is the representation of the presence of God to people. And so we kind of get this position or we get this idea of this priest is just like stepping over this bleeding man as he walks to go get a donut or something. And the thing is, is there's a lot to be seen actually what's going on in this story that, that the people listening probably would have had a lot more sympathy towards this priest. Um, first of all, that Jericho Road, again, that we already mentioned, it's extremely dangerous. And Not to mention, is it just like in theory, like you don't stop. You move quickly when you're moving on the Jericho Road. 
but he's looking at someone who has been beaten and not yet dead. I mean, whoever has beaten this person is very close by, it would seem. And so there's a great risk to his own, uh, his own livelihood. I mean, this area was called the Pass of Blood because of how much um, criminal activity and, and how much murder and, and robbery would happen here. Second, the priest was returning from Jerusalem where he was purified himself so he could perform his religious duties. And here's what the point of this is, is that a priest would be, uh, so a local priest here coming at this point, one from Jericho, he would come up to Jerusalem and he would spend this long process of purifying himself, making himself clean so that he could be the purified, transformed presence of God. Then he would return to his home and he would then perform the sacrifices for his people. This was a long process. And if you know the religious law, you know to touch a dead person or to touch someone who is bleeding out in this point, is to make yourself ceremonially unclean. And so for this priest to care for the man right now, he would have to not only take on the danger to himself, but he then would also have to go back to Jerusalem, spend another week performing religious duties. And here's the thing too, he was possibly carrying food to his town. That a lot of times when priests would perform religious duties, they would be paid in food that they would then bring to their town, they would bring to their people. And so he's bringing things for other people. I mean, this is something that would be beyond inconvenient for this priest. And then uh, beyond that, it would just be a huge potential cost to himself. You see that here in a moment. And then after the priest passes by, so does a Levite. Now, this would be essentially like a junior priest or maybe like a mall cop to a cop or something like that. Uh, but it's somebody who was a part of the priestly line but was not a full priest. And I don't know if he could see the priest up ahead. Again, it was something where you could see people going for a long ways, and he just sees, like, hey, my leader has passed by, and I'm going to do the same. Or if he just thinks that the fact of, like, hey, if a priest is not engaging in this activity, then, then certainly who am I to engage in this activity? Either way, he passes by. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this man was, and he saw him. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which would have been extremely expensive. And then he set him on his own animal. So he sits him on his horse. He walks the rest of the way and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii. denarii. Now that's no small cost. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I mean, he leaves an open tab to a medical professional, which, you know, uh, whatever. In the world before healthcare, is a crazy thing. So he leaves this open tab. Hey, whatever cost you, incu uh, you incur, I will take care of it. And which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor and the man who fell among the robbers? And the religious expert said, the one who showed him mercy. Which is interesting, he can't even say it. And here's why. If you know the scriptures, or if you've been around church, you probably know on some level, the Jews and the Samaritans are sworn enemies to each other. There is a huge divide between these two people. And somewhat, I, I mean, somewhat rightfully earned. I mean, the Jews saw, I mean, the, basically what happens is when um, the Jews are in exile. There's this group where God is saying to his people, you know, at one point when he pulls them out of slavery and he makes them the people of God, hey, I want you to be a separate people. I don't want you to have your hearts turned away 
to other gods. And so for this season, for this time, I don't want you to marry outside of the Jewish uh, people because I don't want you to go and be sucked into their ways of worship because I know you will. And they do marry outside and they do get sucked into other forms of worship. And that's where a lot of idolatry comes into the religious system for the Jews. Now, this wasn't this long time thing. I mean, there wasn't this sense. I mean, God said, hey, no, I'm creating you to be people for the life of all other people. I'm not trying to keep you separate for all time. But there was this season where he says, no, hey, I want you to not be swayed by other gods and the wives that you take on will sway you towards other gods. I don't want that to happen. And so as, as that does happen, you get these half-breeds, essentially, is what the Jews saw them as. People that were Jewish, that, you know, married outside the Jewish people, and they had these people of, that, that were called the Samaritans. They were, you know, mudbloods for the Harry Potter fans out there. And there was these sense that the Samaritans saw themselves as the true people of God, that they lived in a certain part of, uh, of the promised land that said, hey, no, we build an altar. We are the true people of God. And so there's this racial tension that goes back and forth. And so to a Jew, the only good Samaritan was a dead one. Uh, Jews considered that just sharing the bread of a Samaritan was equal to them eating the flesh of swine, which to them was the most defiled animal. And the Samaritans, on their side of it, were not the nicest people either. Um, They would frequently rob caravans of Jews on their way to Jerusalem, and they were known to desecrate the temple of Jerusalem by launching pigs the evening before Passover that would then splatter upon the temple, which... I mean, is outside of that being disgusting, is kind of just like this crazy college prank. But the Jews did not find this funny whatsoever. This was preventing them from being able to worship their God fully. And so there was a deep, bitter hatred between these two people. And God, or Jesus, and who is God, as he tells the story, sets up the hero as a Samaritan. And the person, I mean, the religious expert can't even say the name because of his despises contempt for this group of people. And Jesus says, hey, you've answered correctly. Now you go do and likewise. Yeah, now you go do and likewise. So here's, I just want to take this story, and I want to point out a couple things for us as we enter into this series of practicing the way of Jesus. Because here is my concern for myself and us as a people as we consider taking on practices and learning and teaching upon practices that we hope to shape us into the image of Jesus is that this group of people, the priest, the Levite, and the people that they were being told to, this religious scholar, were people that had spent huge amounts of their time shaping and and doing intentional, intentional formative practices to shape themselves into the image that God had put before them in the law. I mean, the religious expert, we already know, had crazy Bible knowledge. I mean, he nails the question that Jesus asked. Hey, how do you sum up the entire law? There's about six to seven hundred commands, and he's able to sum it up exactly as Jesus does when Jesus is asked the same question. I mean, these people would have had the Bible memorized. They would have prayed multiple times a day. They would have fasted at least twice a week. They would have tithed on everything. I mean, they would have prayed Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, twice a day. And yet there's something broken in this system that these people that are so shaped by the words of God and by the practices that God puts forward, but yet they look on someone in need and find no compassion in their hearts. They are not moved in any way. 
And Jesus is telling this to a group of people that do all the things of God, but it doesn't lead them to have the heart of God. There's a passage in Isaiah 58. You can turn there with me if you'd like, or I'll read it to you. Isaiah 58, which is on page 617 in the Black Bibles. God, writing to his people, says this. Hey, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take knowledge of it? Behold, the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, and you hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is, this, is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And shall the light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear God. And it goes on. And this call of the prophet Isaiah to the people of God is saying, hey, I see you doing all these things. And this is God speaking to them. I see you doing all these things to pursue me, but it is not working because all that you do does not create in you, my heart, a compassion for people. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 23 when he looks at all of the religious Pharisees and the rulers, these people that have been doing all these things to pursue God. He says, you tithe from your mint and your dill. I mean, they're tithing from their spice rack, and they would. I mean, this was something they would tithe of everything. They would tithe of their livestock. They would tithe of their crops. They would even take their spices and take out and tithe from that. And he says, but the problem is, is you've neglected righteousness. You've neglected seeking goodness for other people. And that, in Matthew, the term righteousness is uh, we often d- just define that as like, oh, righteousness is like holiness and personal pu- uh, purity and piety. To Matthew, righteousness was seeking the good of other people. It was social justice. It was caring and loving for others. It was seeing someone in need and having compassion on them. And he's saying, hey, you're seeking all these things, but, but I see the one thing that you're not doing, which is missing the fact that a heart for God is meant to lead for a heart for people. And so my fear is, and one of our things that we've just been wrestling with as pastors, is as we start this series, we don't want to create a false dichotomy. Because the, the church, and I guess maybe just all of life, we can often create this, these false dichotomies of pursuing God, of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with your mind, or loving your neighbor as yourself. And we don't create this sense of this polarity. That love for God leads to love for neighbor, and love for neighbor leads to love for God. And so what we do is we, uh, we do one of four things. Either you don't love the Lord your God, and you don't love your neighbor, and church just becomes like rote tradition. 
And we've seen that, like just the practices of forming yourself into the image of Jesus just become like the spiritual disciplines become ends in of themselves. That I fast or I pray or I do these things just as simply as some sort of cold, dead tradition. Or we step into where we love people, but we don't pursue uh, a deep communion with God. And this actually is a lot of times where I think a lot of us find ourselves. It's like this hard activism. It's this sense of I want to love other people. I want to do things that are going to seek the good of the city or going to seek the good of my neighbors. But the problem is if it's not rooted in a deep communion with God, it will burn out. I mean, the missional church right now, there's being lots written, and we actually consider ourselves a missional church. Hey, we want to be a church that doesn't just um, come in here and commune with each other, but then doesn't see the world around us, but rather we want to be a church that is passionately looking outside our walls to see how we can be a part of being for the good of the city. We say all the time, we don't want to build just a great church. We want to be a part of building a great city. But the problem is, there's lots of being written about the missional movement right now because there's so many, there's so much burnout happening by, in droves, because people are going and pursuing after the love of people, but are not basing it in a sense of communing deeply with God. And we've said that was part of the genesis for this series, is when we took a congregational health survey, we asked you, hey, what's going on in our congregation a year ago? We saw that a lot of us were seeking to love our neighbors, but we're not seeking to root ourselves into the practices of forming ourselves into the image of Jesus, and that will burn out. But then you can go to the other side. You can say, okay, well, I'm going to pursue the things of God. And then you miss the things of pursuing after people. And that's when you get Pharisees. And that's where you get the religious rulers. And that's where you get these sense of there's a, I pursue after what it is to know God. But um, I, I don't then see God turning me towards his heart, which is a love for people. And my concern here is that we can pursue the spiritual disciplines as a, as a way to fix ourselves. So I can get to a point where I pursue prayer because of the anxiety or the depression or the pain or something. I want to know the will of God. And so I pursue hard after praying towards God. God, show me your will. God, show me your presence. And maybe he drops it upon us. And then sometimes there's seasons where we pray, we fast, we do all these things, and nothing happens. And so we double down, and we pray harder, and we fast harder, and we do all these acts of pursuing after God. And then we find no, we're we're essentially trying to use God like a drug. We're trying to dispense of like, I want these positive emotions. And so I pursue after God and I want to become emotionally healthy. So I pursue after repentance and I pursue after these things of God, but it doesn't actually create in ourselves a heart that loves God for God. When you come to God, what you get is God. And yes, does that give you the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding? Absolutely, but not every moment of every day. I mean, you read the life of Paul, and the guy is stressed. The guy is struggling. I mean, he is someone who pursues after God with all that he has and still says things like, I feel like I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I feel like I am having my life spilled out on the ground. And I read that, and I'm like, man, I don't, I, I don't really, uh, I, I want some of Jesus, but I want this some of Jesus that makes me feel the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like, I want that side of Jesus. And I don't so much want the one that's like still struggling with being, feeling like my life is being poured out for me. 
And so there's a sense where we can pursue the spiritual disciplines. We can pursue God to try to fix ourselves, but it is a selfish way to look at pursuing God because it doesn't lead us to a life that then loves God for God's sake and then gives us a heart of God and turns us out towards other people. And so I, again, this is a fear for us because we can be a church that sometimes can be after pursuing reading scripture and tithing and volunteering and being involved in your missional community, which are all good things. Of course, we're going to continue to pursue and point you towards those things, but sometimes we can do that, and it doesn't point us to then giving radically of ourselves to other people, of giving of ourselves to care for others. We can pursue the lesser things without forgetting the fact that, I mean, like Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A love for God should move itself into a love for people, a love for the life of the world. And where one does not create a propensity towards the other, there's something broken that we need to examine. And so if you're here and you're one that's been pursuing after the life of people, and we want to say, hey, we want you to make sure that you're rooted and connected to the God, the life force that is going to be able to then be able to empower you to push yourself out. We don't want to overcorrect and create this dichotomy on the other side where then, okay, we pursue after God, but then we remove ourselves from then actually loving and caring for other people. We want to hold them both together. We want them to go forward together. That formation and mission are always intrinsically held together. And to break one of them from the other is to miss the point of formation. It's to miss the point of mission. They both break down without the other. And so let's just look briefly at just the Good Samaritan himself, um, because I think there's some things where he's like, okay, uh, I'm with you, I'm on board, but uh, what do I do from here? And I think we actually see this in the Good Samaritan. So it says this, after the other two, the Levite and the priest passed by in verse 33, says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So two things right here that we want to continually put before ourselves as we look to form ourselves into the image of God. We want to be people that are a part of our formative practices. Yes, we want to pray before God. Yes, we want to abide. Yes, we want to do all these things, but that should lead us to be a people that are able to see that are able to look around our neighborhood, to look around and see need. And here's the reality. A lot of us have really lost our ability to see. That we live in a world with so much need. Get it, man. There's so much need at every corner. I mean, you can turn around and you can find a sense, particularly if you live in these neighborhoods. I mean, there is, you look around and there's no lack of need to be had. And what I'm afraid what that does for us is eventually it just all starts canceling each other out and we lose our ability to really see anything. And then some of it's not just like all the uh, massive amounts of needs. Some of it's just like getting absorbed in life and busyness and phones and entertainment. And we miss the fact that we are surrounded by a world in need. And so we miss the fact of what we are called to see. And... I've just been trying to, as I've been thinking about the Good Samaritans, I've been thinking about this verse, just trying to take some time this week to look around and see need. 
to see what's going around me in my neighbors, on my block, on my street, see what are tangible needs around me. Because here's the thing, you're not called to solve every hashtag uh, social justice campaign that gets put out there. But God has placed you in a place and a time with need around you, with the ability to see and to recognize. And then in order to meet that need, it has to be based out of a sense of compassion. Where it says he has compassion on him. That, that Greek word is splogma, which is more so than just like a heart that breaks. It actually refers to like the inner guts of someone moving. It is a deep, visceral reaction. It is that sense when you see something and it tears you apart. Jesus is regularly having this word used about him that he's like going off to be like with God. He's going off to pursue uh, his father in prayer. And then he sees people in need and it says that he has compassion. His guts are torn up inside and he stops and he heals them. Or he talks about he looks at Jerusalem, his people, and he says that he has compassion. It tears him up inside. And that's the same thing that's going on in the Good Samaritan, that he sees and there's something about this person that is completely different than him. I mean, there's nobody who would be more likely to pass by and say, you get what you deserve. And yet he is torn up inside, sees, and he's moved. And here's, again, a concern for myself. and Because of all the needs in the world today right now, because of we not only stop seeing them, but if we do by any chance have the ability to see them, we lose our capacity to actually feel deep compassion for them. Because again, man, like to feel for something is to feel for everything. And who has the time and the energy to actually feel for the needs going on around us? And so we start limiting it like the priests. We start saying like, okay, like, well, I only can really help those who are in dire need. And Jonathan Edwards, a theologian, writes, well, the problem with that is that it creates this problem of like that God says to love your neighbor as yourself. And I often don't just help myself when I'm in dire need. I help myself when I'm actually in mild discomfort. And so there's a sense of like, okay, well, I can only help those in dire need. It was like, well, no, there's actually a call to see needs wherever they are and to be a part of meeting them. Or there's also this idea that, well, I only help those who are deserving help. Like those people got themselves into that problem. That also ignores the fact that Jesus comes and saves me when I do not deserve it. He saves me when I have no right to be saved. When I have made myself his enemy, he pursues after me. And then the great Samaritan, he, he sees, he has compassion, and then he acts out of great cost to himself. And that's the other like, idea that people often bring up. It's like, oh man, I, like, I want to step in, but the fact is, is like, I just don't have the resources or I just don't have the ability. And... and what we're probably actually saying in that moment is, I don't want to take on the burdens of other people. Because to step into need for other people will burden us. C.S. Lewis talks about, hey, you want to know the idea of like, you know, there's no magic number to like how much to give of yourself or how much to give of your resources. But he says, here's what you know when you're probably stepping into it rightly, is when you feel the burdens of other people and they start to roll onto you. And again, I, I, I've just been reading this text and been like, you know, it's been tearing me up because it's been this sense of just like, yeah, I can, I can give of my resources. I can do all these planned ways to interact with the, the ways of becoming like Jesus and trying to transform myself in these practical 
resources or these practical actions and practical activities. But then I'm regularly met by there are needs around me that I'm either callous to, I don't see, I don't want to feel, or I don't want to engage in at great cost to myself. And this week is just an invitation for me to consider, hey, what am I not seeing of the needs around me? Of that which I'm seeing, what am I not allowing myself to feel? And then as I see and I feel, then man, is there just a call for me to take some tangible action this week in people's lives, in those around me? I'm not trying to put a really heavy burden on all of us. I realize that this can feel like it. I realize a lot of us, I mean, you're busy with work, you're busy with young kids, you're busy in all these seasons, and you're like, okay, this is all I need, is like this sense of just like, now go out and do more. But here's the actual motivation that will actually create hearts in us that radically give. It's interesting that Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the one who is the one who steps in and helps. Because he's trying to tell a story to these Jews, and he picks somebody who's completely unrelatable to them. And and some people have kind of said, well, there's probably a lot of reasons for that going on. But one is, like, you could have, like, had, okay, a priest goes by, a Levite goes by, and then just a good old normal regular Jew. And that would have been very Jesus-like, okay? Like, you know, be like the normal regular Jew. And that would have been, like, their sense. I mean, these are religious leaders of, like, hey, like, somebody who you put down and say is not good enough is now the one who is the hero of the story. I mean, that still would have cut and move them. But the fact is that Jesus casts a Samaritan, somebody who they completely not relate with. Maybe Jesus's point was that they did not at first relate to the Samaritan, but rather they related to the one who was on the ground. And that there is someone who has come at great cost to himself to love and bind up his enemies, to take us into his care, and to be so greatly cared for, shaped, and changed, been given grace so lavishly put upon us that it might become a transformative presence in our lives. Here's the thing about if you just go out and try to get busy this week of trying to go and care for people, is you will run out of steam. You cannot do this outside of a understanding of the gospel that when you were an enemy of God, when you were far from him, When your sin had completely left you for dead on the ground, Jesus comes and steps in and at great cost, not just great cost, like it might risk his life, like at the cost of his life, comes in and steps in and redeems you and I. I've found that this week I've become really disconnected from my own own need and salvation sometimes. My wife was telling me a story of one of our friends who the husband is struggling with some sexual sin. And I had just been like struggling with some like worry and anxiety in the last couple of weeks. And I was just like thinking like, man, this is like, I, like he de- like deserves to be struggling with all this and not me. Because what the problem that I noticed right there in that moment is that I had gotten the point of like, well, I'm a good person. I'm worthy of God coming and comforting me, and this person who's struggling with sexual impropriety in his marriage, now that's somebody who deserves to have all this anxiety and everything cast upon them, because I become disconnected with that I am a broken, wretched, sinful man 
who has no right to stand before the throne of God, but yet because of the grace of God given for me through his life, I now am considered a son. And when that reality continues to shape and move in our hearts, it explodes into a sense of, I have been given life when I was dead, and now I seek to give life wherever I can. It creates a sacrificial heart that actually desires to love other people. And so, as we, again, step into the season of practicing the way, of shaping ourselves, of taking on spiritual rhythms to come and form ourselves in the image of Jesus, we must become a people that do not get disconnected from the life of the world, and that only comes by remembering the fact that we are sinners and broken and in need of grace. And so I invite you now to come forward and take communion. For those of you who are Christian in the room, for those of you who hold on to Christ, come and take in of the act the remembrance and Jesus says, hey, it's interesting. I mean, we can go crazy for like certain things in the, in the Christian life. I mean, like Christmas in a couple of months here, we're going to go crazy for that. We're going to like, you know, random decorations all over your house and we're going to buy gifts and we're going to get trees and we're going to have carols and we're going to do all that. Jesus never says, hey, remember that moment. But he comes and he says, hey, about my death, hey, every time you get together, remember this. Hold on to this picture. And why is that? Because I want you to remember all the brokenness that is in you that I have come to pay for. And then as I joyfully paid for you, and as I joyfully have brought you to life, I want you to remember your position of death. And now out of death, you've been brought into life because that will actually create people who desire to have life flow out of them towards the world around them. And so we're going to come in a moment again. If you're a Christian, if you believe these things, then come Take a piece of the bread, tear it off, dip it in the cup. They'll be gluten-free up uh, here to my right and your left. If you're not a Christian, really glad you're here. But feel no need to come and step into this. We'd much rather you take Christ than communion. Take a sense of a Savior who has come to you when you were an enemy of him and has at great cost, at complete cost to himself, given you life in him. Let me pray for us. Father God. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do the work of shaping our hearts, Lord, as those who hold these two things together, that when we pursue you to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we also pursue loving our neighbor as ourself. And that would not come from a sense of ought or a sense of should, but rather it comes from a sense of that we have been so graciously cared for and loved and shaped and um, and brought into when we were dead and when we were enemies, Lord, that it naturally explodes out of us into life. Lord, remind us now in this moment of communion and remind us moving forward as we look to continue to root ourselves deeply in you, but that rooting in you would then um, move out to a launching out into the world towards others. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.